Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Glenn Fogel, CEO of Booking Holdings, the world's leading provider of online travel services. Booking, formerly called Priceline, has a market cap of almost $100 billion. Glenn, welcome to World of DAS. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited you're here. Now, one of the things I really want to dive in is just understanding acquisitions, understanding M&A strategy. You're one of the very few people who have been incredibly successful at it. And you've had a strong vision since before you were CEO running Priceline's M&A team where you help broker the acquisitions of active holding uh, hotels, bookings.nl. And in some ways, you're like the case study for how to do acquisitions. Why do you think you've been so successful? Yeah, the company has been built by acquisitions. You're absolutely right on that. I was an M&A banker for not a short period of time. I learned how deals really go bad after the deal is done. When I became head of corporate development at Priceline, as it was called then, my main thing is, okay, like a doctor, first do no harm. Don't do something that destroys value. And if you look at the data, and there's a lot of academic studies on this, more than half, and you could pick which study and what the percentages of deals that cost, that are not accretive, that are valuation destruction. There are a lot of fun books to read. There's one of my favorites called Deals from Hell. That's the actual title of it, Deals from Hell. Synergy Trap is another one. Billion Dollar Losses is another one. And the guys who wrote The Synergy Trap, they just came out with a new one, a sequel. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I, boy, did I haven't gotten it yet. And it's just like all these deals that just didn't go well. They went horribly wrong. They're not just the rent of the mill, okay, you spent too much and cost value. These are company destructive. These are like AOL Time Warner type destruction of value type things. So the first thing is don't do something that's going to destroy the company. Okay, so what does that mean? That means do the diligence, really get to know, are these people that you want to do business going forward? Now, if you're doing acquisition, where you're planning to let everybody go, it's like a consolidation, and maybe you just want the customers, or maybe you just want the IP. That's a different thing. But when you're buying a company where you really are going to have to be with these people, and they're going to have to run the business after you bought it. Which I assume is most acquisitions. I would assume so, yeah. You need 90% of the people to stay and be happy. Exactly. So that's one thing. The other thing is, why are you buying it? Do you really understand why you're doing this? And some of the worst ones have been where people said, well, it's financially accretive. And that is not a good reason to buy a company. Like there's a cost savings. When we put these two together, we can buy our pencils for cheaper or something. Exactly. The other thing is, and this is really important, is everybody always talks, and as a banker, you always talked about the synergies, the revenue synergies that we're going to produce. Cost synergies, at least you can feel fairly confident that you understand that. The revenue synergies are always kind of like made up. So you got to be really certain this is going to work or not. But I'll be perfectly honest with you. We've had deals that didn't go right and have gone wrong. And then you step back and say, well, what did we miss? What was the wrong assumption? Or was it just something you never could have known and that, okay, those do happen. And if you don't have mistakes, if you don't have failure, that means you're not taking enough risk, really. If you hit it 100% of the time right, you're just not risking enough. In some ways, there's different schools of thought, like on M&A. One is do everything possible to make every acquisition work. It's kind of like 
more the private equity thing. Like, okay, when private equity is doing a deal, they're going to try to get at least some return on every single deal, but it's going to be pretty rare that a return is going to be a 10-bagger on a private equity deal that's out there. The other side of doing acquisitions, more of the power law side, which is, let's say more like the VC, where most of the acquisitions maybe doesn't work, but every once in a while, you're going to get a 10 or 20x return. And that could be a bookings.nl, or it could be a Facebook acquiring Instagram, or some of these really, really well played out, like eBay acquiring PayPal or something like that. Where do you fall on that kind of continuum? It's interesting. And one of the issues is how many deals are you doing? Because if you're doing just a few, Every so often, you got to make sure that that's you got. If you're a VC and you got a portfolio and you're doing a lot of deals, well, that's okay because you know a bunch of them are going to fail. So it really depends how many deals are you doing. But I would say, and this really is important to me, as a public company, you are always being questioned: Why did you spend that money to buy that company? And shareholders are asking, the board of directors really asking, and when things go wrong, you get a lot of criticism. You got a lot of people saying you screwed up. So as a public company, you really have to make sure that you've got good understanding of why this will be. And you can't say, well, we're going to do 100 deals this year, and we figure two of them are going to pay for the other 98. That is not a good thing to go into the boardroom with. Why do you think so many companies have a tough time doing M&A? Maybe the deals aren't the deals from hell where they completely kill the company, but there's so many deals the company's done. And probably you and I have been in part of many of these deals in our past lives and stuff like that, where they didn't do well. Maybe it was the right company to acquire, but they, for whatever reason, weren't able to integrate it. Maybe it wasn't the right company to acquire to begin with. Why do so many bad acquisitions happen? There's so many reasons. How much time do we have to go through them all? But there are a couple that you see happening over and over and over. First one is, why was it a good idea to begin with? What was the thinking there? And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I believe it's true that some deals happen because of ego. And whether it be the CEO or the board or the whole company's ego, they just want to be bigger or they're jealous of a competitor's size. That's a really, really bad idea. Another reason is that people are desperate or think they're going to be desperate. So you've run out of good things to do to improve your business on your own. It's like a sports team that's really doing badly. They think, well, if we change the coach, they'll all play better okay, the company's not doing well, so let's go buy another company and then it'll make us do better or something. Again, there are so many different reasons. But really, the thing that I look at, was there a misalignment of culture and expectations? That's a good killer of company acquisitions where the culture is so different, they would never work together and people just leave immediately. So all the talent you just bought, so to speak, has disappeared because they don't like the way you do your business or just a different culture. Again, we can go on this forever, but I would say before you do a deal, make sure you've gone through your checklist. I feel like you're one of the best people in the world at acquiring companies. If I think of the flip side, like one of the reasons I admire like Barry Dillers, he's one of the best people in the world at like spinning out companies. Have you ever thought about the other side of it? We have, but we haven't bought enough companies to make it worthwhile to say like, oh, we get more value to spin this off. We really bought the companies that we believe there really is a benefit of being part of the company. And if we were to dispose of it, that would actually decrease the valuation more than we get for the spin out of that company. Are you a conglomerate or are you really integrated bunch of companies? And that's the big difference. Certainly, IAC is more of a conglomerate in a way. 
Absolutely. And look, he has been incredibly successful at acquiring companies too. Barry Diller is just amazing on many things, so you can't really knock him. In some ways from afar, the way I see your strategy is similar to like maybe a Berkshire Hathaway where you buy good companies with good teams and you let them operate. Now I'm learning that there's more integration behind the scenes than I would have known. Well, we certainly started off very much so in the idea of let that company that has built what they built and the reason we want to buy them because they do good things, let them continue to do what they're doing. It would have made zero sense for us having said, well, this is a good company because really great management team. They really know what they're doing. Let's buy it and integrate it. And then those people who built the company, they'll leave. That seems stupid. In fact, the first really big and really critical company we bought, Active Hotels, my pitch to them, and they had offers of a higher value than what we offered, was we'll let you keep doing what you're doing. See, we had a company in Europe called Priceline Europe. And if you want to destroy a value besides buying bad companies, another way to do it is put a bunch of Americans into a non-American company culture, see what happens. So we parachuted a whole bunch of American managers trying to create Priceline Europe, and it's a dismal failure. It's not working out. And now I'm looking around saying, okay, does anybody know how to run a business here in the UK? And these people, active, really smart guys. And my pitch to them was, join our team. We'll let you keep doing what you're doing. The reason I want you to be part of our team is because you know what you're doing. The last thing I'd want to do is lose them. In fact, we came up with compensation packages that really align them with what they were already doing. So basically, they got to get value right away by selling shares to us, but they also got incentive compensation plans that really allowed them almost as if they had continued to own it, really lined up our alignment. And that was really important. How do you think of brand? Because obviously, when you're buying a company, they have some sort of brand that has value. In the B2B software world, let's say when an Oracle or Salesforce acquire a company, they often like strip out the brand and it becomes like the Oracle data cloud or the Salesforce marketing cloud or something like that. But even like 10 years later, people still use the old brand of the company that they acquired, even though that has been completely discontinued because that brand in some ways is still so enduring. How do you think about when to rename it bookings or something, or just keep it the brand that it was? So we were Priceline.com. And we were Priceline.com for a long time. And we bought these other companies, Active Hotels, Booking.com Now, Agoda, Open Table, Kayak, all those things. We buying them all. But the ownership at the top was Priceline.com. But we realized that for Wall Street, because, for example, booking became such a bigger portion of it, we needed to change for the way the investors looked at us. It wasn't a price line. It really was booking more than anything. But we didn't want to change the brands that the customer knew. There's a lot of value in that. So we kept those brands exactly as they were. And that's a big difference because if we had changed everything over to price line when we bought active or bought booking or go to, that would have destroyed a huge amount of the value there. And that's something that you really have to think very carefully before you change that name. Is there a particular acquisition that you made that maybe didn't work out? And what's kind of the takeaway? How do you do a post-mortem on it? Boy, there are a lot. And there are investments we made. For example, one of the areas that I thought would be very interesting to be in was going back in the value chain to where the systems that help do the back office for hotels. Make it simple for the audience here. There's a systems type work for hotels. 
and there was a small startup in Barcelona. I thought, wow, this would be really good to try and help build that out because it really fits with our hotel partners. Perfect on paper. And what happened, though, is so we brought them in. The problem is, though, is that we couldn't get the rest of the company to work closely with these people because they were so busy just growing what their own business was. So Booking.com, for example, was still growing at over 100%. There was no time to spend on how can we work together to provide a better service. So it's like one strategic BD person at Booking thought it was a good idea, but like the average marketing and salesperson. And nobody talked to them and nobody told them this would be a really good thing to bring in and got them to sign on. So there wasn't that buy-in from the rest of the company. They, of course, said, look, I got my objectives. That's not on the list of things that I get paid on. I'm not doing that. So we end up shutting it down. And the person who started that, though, great guy, he is now the founder of a company called Travel Perk, which is a corporate travel company. It's got, I think it's a unicorn. So he's a really smart guy. He's a good guy. It just wasn't the right time for us or the right attention. If you were giving advice to other companies, let's say SafeGraph, where I work, our goal is to make some acquisitions this year. What tips do you have for other companies on how to successfully integrate new companies that they acquire? Well, you have to make sure that all your key leaders are totally part of this process. And not everybody's going to agree, by the way, of course. Get a large enough group, 10, let's say. You're going to have smart people are going to just disagree and they're going to say, I don't think it's a good idea. So disagree and commit to it. That's the thing. After the decision is made to do it, they've got to be committed to making this a success. One. Two, don't wait until you buy the company to have what's the plan after we buy it. Before you buy it, part of the diligence, you're working out what's the plan after we buy it. So you've already done the diligence, what needs to be done. That's part one. And part two, you really have that plan day zero, day one, week one, month one, quarter one quarter two, quarter three, year one, what is going to have to be done? Who's in charge of it? Who owns it? Who's going to be responsible if it doesn't go right that you're going to yell at it and try and fix it? Those are yeah. so important because otherwise it's absolutely not going to happen. Frank, personal favorite booking companies, Open Table. I like using it. I like the fact that it's like a SaaS business and it's a direct to consumer business. It's like a B2B2C type of business in a way. How do you think about these B2B side of, because most of your businesses are more B2C side. It's interesting because while we don't sell the service on the B2B, we do have a two-sided platform just like OpenTable does. Well, we don't have that back-end stuff that I talked about when we didn't. We do have a lot of things where we have to work with the partners. But the thing about OpenTable that really is great is the fact that it has, same as the rest of our business, these true network effects. When you have more people using it for getting reservations, that's more valuable to the other side, the restaurateurs trying to get it. And the more restaurants score on it, the more interesting it is to a potential diner to find restaurants to get a reservation. The more people and the more business you have on each side of that platform, there really is an incredible benefit to that. And that's why it is hard when there are companies that already have that to be able to be effective against that company. There's no doubt that does happen. Well, one of the nice things about OpenTable is there is a single player mode. If you open up in some market where OpenTable isn't even in, you can still help that restaurant a lot with how to design their reservations and what table management and all the other types of things. And then once you get a few in that market, 
now there starts to be a little bit of a network effect because it's hard to sell a network effect business to the first customer unless there's a single player mode. Yeah, it's right. But is it a local business or it is a broader, like a global business like ours is? So travel is very global. When we were expanding out, for example, when we would go to a new city, a new region or something, we could say to these hotels, look, if you join the platform, we will be able to provide you customers because it's global. We have customers all over the world. So it depends on where it is. Certainly local place, you're right. It could be very difficult to start the flywheel engine going. You've also been driving force behind capturing market in Asia. I think you've been thinking about that well before you became CEO. You mentioned Agoda. You've got C-Trip. You've got other companies that you've been working with and thinking about there. What are some differences in acquisition investment strategy in other countries and navigating cultural differences, et cetera? Well, obviously, culture right away. And that's throughout. You know, it's funny when people say Asia, I always like to say, you know, Asia is a really big place. And India is really different than Korea. It's really different than Vietnam, different than China. It's different than Malaysia. For any of us who played Risk as a kid, we know how big Asia is. Exactly. So they're all different. It's bad enough when you're doing acquisitions to understand all things you have to prepare for. But then when you do international acquisitions, now you just expanded exponentially all the issues you have to think about and deal with. And people have different ideas and different thoughts about the regulatory environment or have different thoughts about employee stuff. Different parts of the world have different standards in terms of how you should treat employees. In some places, let's take Europe, for example, very worker protection, lots of rules, lots of things that you have to do. Other parts of the world, not so much. So you go into a place that's different than yours, and you start trying to put in your rules into that area, you may have a lot of pushback. Say, that's not how we do it here. And you have to be really careful. Obviously, tax is always incredibly complex. And then you have something else that is also extremely important when you're doing something global. And that is making sure that certain things which are important to your company, you make them as they are not acceptable to not do. Certainly things like ethics, really important. Because there are certain parts of the world that do not perhaps the same amount of priority on certain types in ethics and training and things like that. There's some place where there's a list of corruption by country. And some areas are higher up and some areas are lower up. If you're going to buy a company in an area that is listed on that list as a high corruption area, you better have all of your ways that you're going to train and educate to make sure you don't end up in a situation because bribing somebody in a foreign country is a violation of the U.S. laws. And you will be the person who will have to deal with it. So these are things, international, incredibly complex. When the news of COVID first started emerging, you had an operation of like a thousand people in China. Did you have some insight and extra visibility? Did you have some sort of early indicator that what was going on? And then how did that affect your response? Because the first thing that got hit was travel. We had very early warning what was going on. And we even had a dry run at this because I knew SARS-1 back in 2003. We'd already seen that. I'd already seen the empty planes going to Canada. We first started hearing as end of December, a potential new pneumonia or something like that in China. And right away, it's like, hmm, this isn't good. And then first week, January, sudden Shanghai, a bunch of our employees start not going to work. This is not good. Why is that happening? 
So you're just seeing lower rates of people going to work, essentially? Well, it's not from illness. People are just getting concerned. And now you start seeing a little bit of news coming out in this first week of January. So I say, okay, we potentially have a really big problem happening. But the question was, is this going to be like SARS 2003, which, while bad and was very devastating to travel in Asia, I mean, really bad travel, but in terms of a human issue, every death is terrible, but not that many people. It wasn't that big a deal, and it really died out pretty quickly. Or is this going to be like the pandemic back in 1919, 1918, 1920? All the internet travel stopped in 1919. You don't know what's going to happen. But one of the biggest things is we have an all company, meaning people from around the world come to our annual meeting in Amsterdam. We have a lot of people who are scheduled to come from China to this meeting at the end of January. And we had to make a decision about two weeks into January. And this is not big news yet at all. And we're like, okay, they can't come. You still have the meeting, but you basically said people from affected regions cannot come to this meeting. Well, there's only one effective region, which was China. We're telling them, we're sorry, but you can't come, which really was hard because they were all excited to come and everything, but saying, we're just not going to take the risk because nobody really knows what's going to happen yet. And then very quickly, everybody sent everybody home. And then in Asia, we start everybody go home, work from home. So in a very short time, we go from everybody works in an office to 27,000 employees all have to work from home. If somebody had come to me three months early and said, what do you think we send everybody home and work from home? How long do you think that would take to happen? I said, well, we'll have to have a committee. We'll study it for about a year. And yet, literally a couple of weeks and everybody's home, just a few weeks, really. One thing, if you're running a huge B2B software company and you send everybody home, but your business is still thriving, but you're sending everyone home and travel's going off the cliff must be an insanely stressful time. And then I heard during that time, you yourself got COVID as well. I did. But before that, though, don't forget, while new bookings are going off the cliff, cancellations have skyrocketed to unbelievable records. Which is like a double whammy. It's terrible because now you have the terrible problem of issues where people are pleading, they need their money back, they're losing their job, but we can't give them back the money. Because the money's with the hotel, not us. We don't have the money. And the hotels are saying, we're not refunding that. We need that money because there's no business. We need that money. We're not giving it back. We took out, I think it was over $100 million. We took out our own pocket to hand out to customers and said, we'll get the money back from the hotels later, assuming they actually survive. And we'll do it that way just to try and help people. And at the same time, yeah, there's some hotels said no. Other hotels, you couldn't reach them. There's nobody there. They shut it down. All of them went home. Who are you going to call? There's nobody. I think right around that time, you also had to lay off about a fourth of your workforce too, right? Well, that really staggered around. In the US, we could move fairly rapidly because the labor laws in the US are fairly liberal in terms of when you need to make a change in your workforce, you can do it fairly easily provide a fair amount of compensation for severance and all that, doing that, and that's how that country works. Go to other countries, not so simple. The Netherlands is very different, not so simple. So I kept delaying that as long as I could for a couple of reasons, one in particular being that it's really costly, it's really hard to do, and maybe, because nobody really knew still, we're like, is this going to go till years or is it going to be just a few months? So it wasn't until the fall of 2020 that we actually started the process of letting people go 
in the Netherlands and in certain parts of Europe. Now, this is really, really, really important. In the U.S., you get to choose who you want to let go. And you can base that on lots of different reasons, or no reason if you're that type of company. I hope no company is, but some companies are random like that. But in Netherlands, it's very, very, through legislation, you have to really do it last person in, first person out. You can't do it like the low performers out or something like that. No, you can't do that. And that's really unfortunate because what you'd like to do is choose who you would like to let go, the low performers. Maybe they want to be let go. Exactly. You can't do that. You can't do that at all. So the worst part is you're growing fast and you're getting people. You get some great talent. They just came in last year. They're great and they're wonderful. Those are the people you're going to have to let go first. And also, you just spend all this time recruiting this amazing person. Exactly. It's very detrimental to the culture when you do big layoffs. Really bad. It can be somewhat traumatic. Now, looking back, if somebody had told me at the time, this is how the thing is going to work out, and I absolutely had 100% knowledge of the future, I may have done some things differently. But you don't have that luxury. You don't know how bad it's going to get. And you have to take action based on the facts you have at the time and the probabilities of how they'll play out in the future. Basically, most of the people that we had to let go, unfortunately, were people who were related to volume, people who were customer service people. So after we got through the terrible crunch of all the refunds and all that, if you only have 25% of the business you used to have, well, then you don't have as many customer service people needed. But I do like the fact that we waited so long because there were no jobs to be gotten at the beginning. But by the time we actually started letting people go, a lot of businesses needed people like that, like Amazon. So now there were jobs. You let them go probably in the best employment market in history. So they were able to find another job very quickly. Exactly. So I was really happy that we could do that. That was a good move. You had SARS in the past. You had 9-11 in the past. You had the dot-com crash, which is right before 9-11. You've had many crises in the past. Did those past crises help you prepare for this one? Don't forget Japan earthquake. Don't forget Europe shut down by a volcano in Iceland for two weeks. Remember that one? That was interesting. I don't even remember that one. You do not remember the Icelandic volcano that shut down air travel for like two weeks? Now I vaguely remember it. The name of the volcano, nobody can pronounce it. I was actually in Europe and couldn't get back to the States. So listen, the only good thing about a crisis is it helps prepare you the next time. Right now, there's a terrible crisis going on, and that is this war in Ukraine, this terrible war. One of the things is because of all the things that we learned how to deal with crises in the past enabled us to react to this terrible crisis much better, and I'm really proud of the way we've done it. We now have a platform that is putting refugees into either free or greatly discounted hotel rooms or private homes as accommodations for them. Just so proud of the team to be able to get that up and running, being able to get our employees out of Ukraine who are able to leave and get them into safe places in Poland and other places, being able also to know how we're going to handle with our employees in Russia, how do we suspend business in Russia and Belarus, but still make sure we're doing the right thing for our employees there. All these type of crises, we're able to do it well because of all the experience we've had having to deal with crisis after crisis after crisis. Going back to acquisitions, I think you've made your first post-pandemic acquisition with Get A Room. 
I think it was a $1.2 billion acquisition. In some ways, back in the day, you could have been more greedy when others were fearful. How do you think of when was the best time to start doing M&A again? And don't forget, we bought eTravelize. Well, we signed the contract to buy eTravelize. It hasn't closed yet. That was almost $2 billion, $1.8. And the Getter Room did close in December. There were a couple of companies I really thought would be really good to get together, and I had discussions. The problem is they knew what I knew, which is this will not last, and the valuation is greatly depressed. Why would I sell now? I'm not desperate. The companies that were willing to sell, I didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. So that's the problem when you have that dislocation in valuation is that the companies that you'd really like to do a deal with, they're not usually going to be willing to do a deal. There's been this kind of shift popularized by Airbnb as the consumers are more lodging in homes and apartments rather than hotels. And I think even though hotels is a big majority of your bookings, I think you're still one of the largest place of booking alternative housing and probably have more revenue going on alternative housing than even Airbnb. What's your strategy for thinking about competing with like an Airbnb? It's the same competition with anybody. You got to have as good a product or better to start off, and then you got to continue to improve it. You got to make sure people are aware of this product because it can be the greatest product in the world nobody knows about. And there's no doubt in the US, so people who are listening to this who are from the US, very few of these people probably think of booking.com. They say, I need a home on the beach. I want a condo for skiing, nice little lodge up at the lake. Few people think of us first in the US. Now, if you're in Europe and you said, I want to have a place, an apartment down in the south of France, booking.com will be top of mind. So one thing is awareness. But the other thing is also product. And there's no doubt there are areas in the US where we need to improve our product more. I'll give you, we just came out recently with an insurance product for the homeowner that if somebody breaks their leg in the home during the thing, our insurance will cover that. We didn't used to have that Airbnb. It always offered that. If you're a person renting out your own home, you say, well, which one would I rather go with? I'll go with the one that's going to be insurance. So you got to make sure the product is as good. And then you have to do the marketing so people are aware of it. What's your prediction, let's say 2023 travel, 2024 travel, How is it going to look differently from 2018 and 2019 travel? Are we going to see business travel at 50%, but personal travel at 120%? Or how do you think these things change over time? There are definitely things changing. Everybody's allowed to throw a dart. So my dart is a couple of things. Business travel absolutely is coming back right now, and it will continue to come back. But I believe in the future, it will always be a smaller percentage than it was pre-pandemic because of things like we're doing right now. Being able to do what we're doing eliminates a lot of travel that people felt they had to do. Now you don't have to do it. And if you're a CFO, you're looking really closely to we really need to spend the money for those kind of trips or not. The flip side of that, though, some people say is, well, yeah, but with people living away from the office, be able to do a lot more flexible working away from the office, maybe there'll be more travel. You got to bring people together every quarter for internal meetings and things. Exactly. But I don't think it's going to be as much. The next thing that's interesting is the higher end hotels and the front of the bus, they call it the first class seats in the planes, the business class seats in the planes. Yeah. The suppliers made a lot of money off those. And if that's going to be reduced, 
that changes the economics of the airline and the high-star hotels because they can't depend on as much of that corporate travel that really helped fund the business. So you got to change it around a little bit. That being said, though, I'm seeing rates at hotels that are in leisure destination, which are just off the chart crazy rates. But that could be part of because there's such pent up demand right now to travel. Maybe 23, 24 comes back down a little bit and leisure rates go back to a little more normal rates is where they are right now. I was talking to an executive at one of the top hotel chains, and they said that the rates are insane. They're off the charts but they are having trouble hiring people. So every one of their hotels, even their top hotels are severely understaffed. So people are paying double the rate and getting like half the experience. The product that they're getting is worse and they're worried that they may be turning off people. How do you see that happening? I had a conversation just like that too. And I don't think it's the same person though, because this CEO of a very, very luxurious brand, what they're doing is they have, shut down a significant number of the rooms in that hotel. They are not trying to fill those. To keep the experience high. Exactly. And he says, look, my revenue is higher than it was before with a lot fewer rooms and a lot lower cost. That's how they're doing it. By the way, another issue, union rules. So one of the things, I can't get enough people to clean the rooms. I know, I'll use those robot vacuums up and down the hall. Union rules can't do that. I mean, that's part of the problem when you don't allow types of development, productivity, efficiency, those kind of frictions and trying to move things forward. That's really unfortunate because clearly you can't hire the people to do it, but you also can't do it using technology because the union rules prevent you from doing it. Interesting. In some ways, you guys own every step of the travel process booking hotel flights, rental cars, you got the restaurant reservations. You really have a sense of understanding consumer data and trends that are happening maybe more than almost anyone else in the industry. Have you ever thought of monetizing that data? Obviously using it internally within booking, but is there a way other companies and other organizations could use that data? We do think about doing that. We have a new group we started last year, our fintech group. This would fit under them for monetizing that in different ways. We do give this data away as part of our relationship with our partners. For example, during the pandemic, we knew right away how much people were traveling only within hour and a half drive. And therefore, hotels should be doing all sorts of special things to try and get that area because those are the only people traveling. We have a lot of data that we do share, but we're also going to come up with ways to package it and use it. For example, there are probably a lot of hedge funds that would like to see all sorts of trend data and things like that. We never even thought about that, but maybe there is something that we can do and provide a service like that. A couple of last questions. The pandemic time, we talked about it. It must have just been incredibly stressful. What tips could you share with other executives about just how to deal with all that type of stress? It's been almost two and a half years now of really quite stressful times and such. I mean, these are the obvious things everybody should be doing all the time. I'll just say what I do. Everybody gets to choose their own thing. For me, first of all, I exercise every day. I almost never miss a day. Almost never. And for those of you who can't see on video, you look amazing, by the way. And so it's just making sure you're in shape and everything. Absolutely important. That's number one. Second thing is I do meditate. It's only about 10 minutes. I think it's helped. I don't know. I've been doing it for a long time. I think it's a good thing. I like it. It's good. Make sure you get enough sleep. Absolutely. 
especially a stressful time. It's like, I got to work an extra hour. I got to get up an hour earlier or something. Yeah. And then the end is, and this is again for everybody, I know it's really hard, but it's very much that there are many different ways to describe it, but the recognition that this is not the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your life is your family, your love, your friends, life in general. Think what's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen in travel businesses, the worst that happened is company what? Goes bankrupt? You get fired, whatever. I've been fired before. It's okay. I've been through that. I've had that happen. I'll be able to eat. My children will still love me. My wife will still love me. I'll still love them. That's the important things in life. If you're not sure, put on the news. Look what's happening in Ukraine. And you know, life's not bad. Okay. Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? There's so many of those. I will say one. And this is for younger people who feel that it's so incredibly important that, and these are people, obviously, they're already out of school, but I'll start at the beginning. Is the pressure from people nowadays to feel, I've got to achieve immediately. I've got to go to the best school, and then I got to get the best job. And then after that, I got to continue just to pushing ahead as hard as I can. My saying is, you know, some life's long. There's so much that you don't control in life. Don't feel that you have to overachieve every minute of the day. And I'd say this more because I see I live in a suburban town with the high pressure, the kids, the universities, and then what job am I going to get out of school? And then am I going to go to grad school and all this? And I say, you know, if you put all that pressure on and all that's all you're thinking about all the time, that's not going to be a fun life. But it's hard. I mean, if you're giving advice to a young person, they got their parents pressuring them, they got peer pressure on it. It's hard to break out of it. How should one break out of that mimetic pressure system? If you know the answer, send it to me. All right. That's fair. Thank you. This has been amazing. Where can people find you, follow you on the interwebs? The truth of the matter is we put out some thought pieces occasionally on LinkedIn. I don't tweet. Yeah. I don't see you on Twitter. You're not an Elon Musk person. No, not doing that stuff. The occasional squawk box thing, et cetera. But if somebody does need to get me, my email is pretty open. All right, Glenn, thank you again for joining us at World of Death. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.